0: Good morning. Good morning. The scripture reading this morning will be from Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 6. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined, though no, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as, he, as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man, was made the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went to the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus said to them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deep, deeply distressed at their stubborn heart, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks,
1: Thanks be to God. Well, keep your Bibles open if you have them open to Mark chapter 2, going into chapter 3. This is um, a bit of a long section today, but um, we're going to chart a course through it. And Let's pause and pray once again. Lord, we believe that where your word is preached, uh, you work. So I pray that you would work in each one of us today and deconstruct any uh, bad beliefs or practices we have that hinder people from knowing you or that cause us to miss the point of knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a funny thing that happens when you're a pastor. I don't, I don't wear a white collar or, you know, I don't have anything obvious that tells people I am a pastor. So I'll be out talking to folks at a gathering or in town. And, you know, eventually the subject will come up. So what do you do? And as soon as I say I'm a pastor, the conversation changes. <laughs> Sometimes people say, oh, And they apologize because they've just been using F-bombs or this or that. And they feel embarrassed and they have to apologize and and like I need to, you know, give them a dispensation for that. Um, Other people uh, are confused because they see my wedding ring. And they're like, oh, I thought priests couldn't get married. And they just have all these associations with, with pastors. And then a third group, it's like a wall goes up. And they just sort of turn off and you can tell like they're not interested in engaging in that topic. Maybe they've had some bad experiences with the church. But you don't have to be a pastor for this to happen. I'm sure this has happened to a lot of you when you've made it known that you're a Christian. Suddenly people act differently around you. Sometimes that's simply because the presence of Jesus in you may be shining light and people in sin don't like the light just as we don't like the light in our sin. And so maybe they're uncomfortable. But more often than not, I think the problem is that people associate Christianity with religion. And religion uh, has a lot of baggage, a lot of negative connotations. Religious people, you know are good, moral, upstanding citizens. And if you're not like that, then uh, that's not for you. Or religious people follow the rules. Religious people go to church every Sunday. Religious people have their act together, and they look down their noses on those who don't. I know these are stereotypes, but as people who, in some sense, are religious people, um, we need to pay attention to this, because Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He didn't come to uh, say, here's how you can be a good, moral, upstanding person, and to make sure you don't get contaminated by those who aren't, right? It's the opposite. Jesus came as a doctor for the sick. And I'm convinced that one of the main obstacles in the way of people coming to Christ is the negative associations they have with religion. The good news that I want to share with you today that should come through this text is that Jesus actually deconstructs religion. You see him doing this with the religion of the day that the Pharisees were represented the epitome of. He challenges them and deconstructs things that are untrue, unbiblical, ungodly. And here in Mark 2, 13 through verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, we see that this is very threatening to the Pharisees and the religious people. So threatening that by the end of this passage, they plot, they start plotting to have Jesus killed. Last week we saw the confrontations begin between the Pharisees and Jesus. When Jesus healed the man who was paralyzed, Remember? And he healed him and also said, your sins are forgiven, claiming God's authority to do that, which made the Pharisees very upset. But Mark now tells four more confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees. In the first three, the Pharisees criticized Jesus by asking him a question that's more like a veiled criticism. And as Jesus responds, he deconstructs their idea of religion and in the fourth confrontation Jesus actually sets up the conflict himself and tries to expose and challenge the hearts of the Pharisees so my prayer is that as we go through this passage we will and we see Jesus at work deconstructing religion and replacing it with the gospel that the same thing would happen to us. That anything in us, in our church, that is not centered on Jesus and on his gospel would be dismantled, would not be true, and that everything we do and and believe and say would be centered on Jesus. So, let's go. The first uh, conflict happens when Jesus is, is with the wrong crowd. So we read about Jesus out teaching with the masses, teaching the crowds by the lake, and then we see him walking by a tax collector's booth, a tax collector named Levi, son of Alphaeus, and says to this guy, follow me. Now, we don't get the full connotations of why this would have been problematic at the time. Tax collectors were hated... Not because they were like an IRS agent and nobody likes to talk to the IRS, right? Not because of that. In order to be a Jewish tax collector under Roman occupation, you had to be willing to be corrupt. One commentator I read said that the Roman tax system only worked because of graft and corruption. That was built into the system. And so the tax collectors would make a bid for a certain region to be paid or to collect a certain amount of taxes. And then anything over and above that that they could collect through fraud or inaccurate weights or confusing regulations was theirs to keep. Now what kind of a person does this? What kind of a person would scam a senior citizen out of their Social Security benefits? Levi, son of Alphaeus, that's the kind of person who would do it, a tax collector. So can you imagine how he felt knowing that every Jew around him hated him when Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, comes to him and seeks him out and says, follow me, be my disciple. I... You know, I, I'm sure he was surprised, flattered, confused, but the call of Christ was a powerful on him, and he got up and, and followed him. And what happens next? Jesus is at Levi's house with all of Levi's friends having a dinner party. This is when we see the Pharisees come in to spy on, to inspect what this rogue rabbi is doing at this dinner party with such notorious sinners. If Jesus wasn't popular, they probably wouldn't care, but Jesus is drawing crowds, he is speaking in the name of God, and so the Pharisees are very concerned about what's happening. The word Pharisee means separated one. The Pharisees were very concerned with maintaining purity, holiness, separateness from any sin, and they had lots of rules to help them do that. But you see, today, when you call someone a Pharisee, that's one of the worst insults you can can lob at someone. But in Jesus' day, Pharisees were largely admired. They were seen as like the model Jewish faithful citizens. You know, you'd look at a Pharisee and think, I should probably be more like that. Because they take the law seriously they really commit themselves to following the Torah. And I know I, I'm not as consistent as I should be. I don't, you know, I don't, ob- I don't observe every little law, and so I should probably be more like them. But that's not how Jesus saw it. The Pharisees were scandalized that Jesus was sitting with these sinners, and so they asked his disciples a question. Why does he eat why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners you know sometimes you ask a question that's not really a question why did you do that or what were you thinking you're really just saying you're you're upset with that person well here the Pharisees aren't really asking for information they're saying why on earth is your is your rabbi doing this and bringing disrepute unto the name of God. Right? Jesus overhears them, even though they're not talking to him, they're talking to his disciples. But Jesus answers. What does he say in verse 17? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Makes sense. You don't... Get help from a doctor unless you know you're sick, right? But Jesus is not saying, "Look, the really bad sinners need help, but you guys are okay, so I'm not so I'm not worried about you. I'm here for them." He's saying, "Anyone who, uh, only the people who know their need will will reach out for help. Only the sick." need a doctor, only those who know they're spiritually sick will need me. The Pharisees thought they were morally spotless. The tax collectors and prostitutes and con artists, on the other hand, were under no such illusion. They knew they were morally corrupt. They knew they were sinful. And here was a rabbi befriending them, loving them, not lording it over them, but actually loving them. And so they were drawn to Jesus magnetically. It says there were many who followed him, verse 15. Many of these quote-unquote sinners were attracted to Jesus and followed him. Now I wonder, is that still true today? Do churches attract people who know they are sinful and broken or do they tend to attract people who are um, virtuous and see themselves as good people? I think sadly many, many churches uh, would go in the second category. But if our church is going to be centered on Jesus and his gospel, we will be the kind of people who send the message, we are no better than anyone, right? We need Jesus. You need Jesus. Come one, come all. Here's how how you can personally be part of that change. If you think about, for a minute, think about the people for whom you would use the phrase, those people. The people you wouldn't invite over for dinner. Who would that be? Drug addicts? uh, Prostitutes? uh, You know... Transgender people? Who, who would be those people that you wouldn't want in your home, that you wouldn't want to associate with for risk of contamination? Those are the people that Jesus wants you to love and to he wants to break down a wall of pride between you and them. Because we are all sick in need of the doctor, in need of Jesus. Hmm. Okay, so here's the first way Jesus deconstructs religion. Religion says, stay away from those people. And Jesus says, love those people. I came for those people. Number two, we come to the second confrontation with religious people, and it involves fasting, which was an expression of piety piety, showing your religious uh, uh, um, commitment. Verse 18 says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? In other words, people aren't going to take you seriously if you're not doing the religious things that everyone does, that the committed people do. Fasting was very important in Jewish culture. Uh, There was only a few days that were required to fast, like the Day of Atonement. But most people who were serious about their faith did a lot of extra credit fasting. So the Pharisees, for example, fasted every Monday and Thursday from dawn to dusk. Now, this wasn't for weight loss or for detoxing their bodies, as people do these days. It was to kind of prove to God and to other people that you were pious, you were serious, you were committed. Now, Jesus has nothing bad to say about fasting itself, uh, but he changes, uh, uh, he says something that deconstructs their view of piety. Look what he says. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. This is astonishing because, well, I'll save that that reason for a second, but a Jewish wedding was a big deal. Okay, so two or three or four days of feasting and dancing and partying and all work would stop. It was just a huge extravaganza. Now, you wouldn't pick that time to say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm fasting today. I can't join in the party because I'm abstaining from food out of for religious reasons, right? How could you? And Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. Now, all through the Old Testament, God compares himself to the the husband or the bridegroom of his people, Israel. So Jesus is tapping into that and saying, the bridegroom is here. So where the bridegroom is at the wedding, it is a party. It's about joy. The Christian life is about joy, not about being dour and serious and... Showing your commitment and your piety. I mean there's a time and place for fasting But that's it has a limited scope the Christian life overall is about joy We're going to be celebrating for all eternity celebrating Jesus the bridegroom right so um, How can How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them religion says show your piety but Jesus says join the party join the party my party the bridegroom is here Um, as Jesus continues then he tells these two mini parables one about sewing an unshrunk patch on a torn garment and one about pouring new wine into old wineskins now wine was actually fermented in skins, in like leather pouches, and so they would expand as the wine was fermented, and then they would kind of reach their limit of expansion. And so after, they they were single-use, basically. You couldn't refill them because they would crack and break. Now, both of these parables, it's clear, Jesus is saying I didn't come to patch up an old religious system or refill some old system. I came to start something new. I came to start something new. And it centered on me, the bridegroom, on a new reality of me and my love. Well, the third controversy is probably the the biggest one for the Pharisees because... The Sabbath was a really big deal. We don't really get this in our culture, but we have to just put ourselves in in their shoes for a minute and uh, realize that keeping the Sabbath was like the one thing that you did if you were a Jew. That was like one of the most important things. And the Sabbath was Friday at, uh, at sunset to Saturday at sunset. And you weren't supposed to do any work. You just had to rest, worship God, be with your family, go to synagogue. And that was like this weekly rhythm of being spiritually refreshed and, and obeying um, God's command in Exodus to keep the Sabbath. Okay, so this was a really big deal. And the problem is that religious people like the Pharisees had constructed all kinds of additional regulations around the Sabbath to make sure that you couldn't break the law. So, like, if a building collapsed on the Sabbath, you could work to rescue survivors, but if people died, you couldn't take their bodies out. Or you could only walk a certain number of steps on the Sabbath. Uh, you could only tie a knot if it could be untied with one hand. Right? All these kinds of rules and regulations, man-made rules that were not in the, in the Torah. So here's Jesus and his disciples. They're walking through a, a field, and they're picking off heads of grain and eating them. And the Pharisees say, well, that's harvesting. You're harvesting on the Sabbath, and you're breaking God's law. Now, there's no such law in the Old Testament, but that's the way they interpreted it. So they level this accusation at Jesus' disciples that they are breaking the law. And this this is how religion works as opposed to life in Christ. Religion uses rules as a ladder to climb to God. Well, to try to climb to God, you can't. But if, as long as you're keeping the rules and doing well, you know that you're in good shape. And if you slip and break the rules, you can work to get back on that ladder, right? But Jesus' answer really destroys that logic. Verse 25 Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. So first, Jesus is saying there's even biblical precedent for some rules to be broken at some times. But more importantly, 27, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which means I'm in charge of the law, which is a big claim. And I can tell you the true intent of the Sabbath, which was for man, It was not a burden placed on people, a set of rules to have to follow. It was meant to be refreshing and rejuvenating and a blessing, not a burden. It was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, Jesus is not disregarding the law. In fact, he's honoring it more than the Pharisees were honoring it. Do you see? Because they reduced it to a set of rules, but he said the true intention is that it's for you, for our good, for blessing. Religion says follow the rules, but Jesus says follow me. If you just try to follow the rules, you may feel self-righteous, you may feel like you're doing well, but you won't please God. If you follow Jesus, He will lead you into following the true intent of God's law. You see the difference? They can look similar on the outside, but they are miles and miles apart. Well, finally, uh, the last confrontation. And then I'm going to tie this together. Uh, is another Sabbath confrontation. It says Jesus went into a synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. This is interesting. So in this final scene, Jesus takes initiative to to cause a confrontation. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now, can you imagine being that guy, like having your deformity pointed out in front of this whole crowd? That takes, would take some trust for him to do that. Um, so Jesus then asks a question. This guy's standing there in the middle of the room. And Jesus says, which is lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do evil to save life or to kill it's his turn to ask them a question and they are silent they can't answer it says jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts he wants them to change he wants them to see but they refused to. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. This is the the only, I may be wrong, but this is the only miracle that I know of that Jesus did intentionally to be a spectacle, right? To make a point. He's forcing the issue. And still, how do the Pharisees respond? They go out and plot with their political enemies, the Herodians, to try to kill Jesus. That shows you the the poisonous fruit of religion gone bad, as opposed to following Jesus. Religion says, stay away from those people. Jesus says, I love those people. Religion says, show your piety Jesus says, join the party. Religion says, follow the rules. Jesus says, follow me. Religion leads to death. Jesus is life. Jesus is for the good of people, for life, for blessing, for restoration. I want to close with a story that hopefully ties this together. And thanks for hanging in there. I know this is a long passage. pastor named Tony Campolo was in Hawaii on a, for a conference of some kind. And because of the jet lag, he couldn't sleep the first night, so he left the hotel and went around the corner to the Greasy Spoon Diner. It was open 24-7. He says as I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3:30 in the morning the door of the diner suddenly swung open and to my discomfort in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes He said it was a small place and they sat on either side of me their talk was loud and crude I felt completely out of place and was just about to leave when I heard the woman beside me say tomorrow is my birthday I'm going to be 39. Her quote-unquote friend responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I don't want anything from you. I mean, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? Tony Campolo said, when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left. Then I called over to the guy behind the counter and asked him, did they come here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. What do you, why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday, I told him what do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks and he answered with delight, that's great, I like it, that's a great idea. And he called out to his wife who did the cooking and shouted, hey, come here, this guy's got a great idea, tomorrow's Agnes's birthday, he wants to go in with this guy wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her. Um, so they make this plan. The cook at the restaurant says he will make the cake. And then it continues. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some cray paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of the big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes! Agnes! I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu (laughs) was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. (laughs) At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. (laughs) I had everybody ready, after all, I was kind of the MC of the affair, and when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. I have never seen a person so flabbergasted or stunned or shaken. Her mouth fell open, her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came out, came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if... I mean, if I keep the cake for a little while? Harry shrugged and answered, Sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, take it home if you want to. Can I, she asked. Then looking back at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple doors. I want to take the the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. So she got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. (laughs) We all stood there motionless. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed, and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter, and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? He said, In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I would join a church like that. And Tony Campola says, wouldn't we all? That's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. So I wonder... Is there anything in our faith that Jesus needs to deconstruct and rebuild around him and his gospel and his love? If you and I are known for anything, may it not be that we are good religious people, but that we radiate the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that draws people to him. Amen.